pray that they are. And we're going to be looking this morning at John chapter 10. I left my glasses down on the... I'm the guy that leaves glasses everywhere now. <clears throat> last, uh, last week... Um, actually, 10 days ago, April 18th to be exact, uh, the Financial Times, which is a daily newspaper that's actually published in London, um, Financial Times is one of the premier business and economic newspapers that people read all over the world. It's up there in stature with the New York Times. Um, on April 18th, an article was published with this headline, A Preacher for Trump's America. Joel Osteen and the Prosperity Gospel. And the subhead was this. Lakewood Church's $60 million smiling pastor holds up worldly success as proof of God's failure. Their favor. It's proof of God's favor. <laughs> Following that, in the online edition, at least, as I was reading this this last week, was this verse, which is taken out of context, I need to add. It's Malachi 3.10, which says, Bring to the storehouse a full tenth of what you earn. And then later in the verse it says, I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour out all of the blessings you need. One of the opening paragraphs of the article said this. It said, Optimism, hope, Destiny, harvest, bounty. These are Lakewood's buzzwords. Prosperity, too. Words that are rarely heard include guilt, shame, sin, penance, and hell. Lakewood is not the kind of church that troubles your conscience. If you want to feel bad, Lakewood is not the place for you, said one church volunteer. Most people want to leave the church feeling better than when they went in. Well, that last statement is probably true. Um, most people do want to leave the church every Sunday feeling better than when they went in. I know I do. But the article continues and says, Hardline evangelicals dismiss the prosperity gospel as unchristian. Some of Lakewood's more firebrand critics even label it heresy. They point to the belief, which Osteen seems to personify, that God is a supernatural ally whom you can enlist to help enrich your life, you know, like a genie. There's scant mention of humanity's fallen condition in Osteen's motivational talks. Yet the market share of U.S. churches run by celebrity prosperity preachers such as Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, and Paula White keeps growing. Three out of four of the largest megachurches in America subscribe to the prosperity gospel. Formal religion in the U.S. has been waning for years. Almost a quarter of Americans now profess to having none, no religion at all. Among the Christian brands, this article calls different kind of spheres of Christianity, says only, quote, non-denominational charismatics, which this article says is a scholarly term for prosperity preachers. That's not quite right, but it's close. Only that group is expanding. Though precise numbers are hard to find, one in five Americans is estimated to follow a prosperity gospel church. This offshoot of Christianity is quintessentially American. It is a blend of the Pentecostal tradition and faith healing. It's also expanding worldwide. 
Among its largest growth markets are South Korea, the Philippines, and Brazil. And then just just a little bit more. Listen to how this journalist describes the relationship between Osteen and those who listen to him. He, He says this, Osteen knows his audience. We want fatted calves slaughtered in our honor. There's no hint in his message of the fire and brimstone of a Billy Graham or a Jerry Falwell, two of America's most celebrated 20th century evangelists. Osteen is more like Oprah Winfrey in a suit. He's not peddling the opium of the masses. It's more like therapy for a broken middle class. If God had a refrigerator, Osteen said, your picture would be on it. If he had a computer, your face would be the screensaver. So you may not be taken in by this heresy, but you know people who are. You know people who are taken in by this. Uh, You know people who attend local churches um, where some form of the prosperity gospel is preached every week or nearly every week. I I can guarantee that. This is not just happening in Houston, Texas. There are churches in Bell Fountain and Marysville. Um, that subscribe to this very clearly, hold to the prosperity uh, gospel, prosperity theology. There are churches that hold uh, kind of blatantly to it, and then some that hold a a more subtle form of this dangerous false teaching. I'm going to hit this pretty hard today, uh, because we have come in our study of John's gospel to John chapter 10, verse 10, which is one of those key verses that prosperity preachers use to deceive people. to to lead them astray, to upset whole families by teaching for shameful gain, as Paul writes in Titus, by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And so we're only going to be looking at that one verse today, John 10.10. But I want to read this whole section so so that we can hear with our own ears, so that we can see with our own eyes the context of Jesus' words here. Because it's actually wrong to pull this verse out of this larger teaching. So I'm going to read uh, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Actually, let me start in chapter 9, verse 40, just a couple of verses before. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and uh, and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. 
and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's just stop and just ask God to help us to understand these things today. Father, we do ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us to understand your word today. These words that Jesus spoke. That your name might be praised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question is, why did Jesus come into the world? Why did Jesus come into the world? This is a question that we, as his disciples, as the followers of Jesus Christ, we need to have a ready answer for. There's actually several answers to this question, any of which would be helpful for us to memorize. So in Luke 19, verse 10, uh, Luke tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus explains, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those are probably the most well-known answers to that question, even succinct answers to the question, why did Jesus come into the world? But there are many more. I'm going to give you a few right now. Why did Jesus come into the world? John 9, 39, just the previous chapter. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He's talking about his crucifixion. John 17, verse 4, Jesus prayed, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In John 18, 37, he says, For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. Mark chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus responds to uh, his apostles. He says to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out, Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, at the beginning of the teaching, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You probably know John 3.16. For God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Matthew chapter 10 verses 34 and 35. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, Jesus said, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
the apostles in their writings, in the epistles, they testified. In, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, John the apostle writes, For the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul, in writing in Romans, um, he digs deep into theology. And he writes this in Romans 3. I'm going to read 23 to 26. This will probably be familiar, but just listen carefully. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. To show God's righteousness. And then in the book of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews in chapter 2 verse 14 says, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And then of course today's verse says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So why did Jesus come into the world? Jesus Christ came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He came to redeem lost sinners, to obediently fulfill God's promises, to glorify God's name, to destroy death. And then, of course, as today's verse says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Of course, these aren't, these aren't different answers. These aren't different answers to the same questions. They're all true. They're all overlapping. They're not contradictory. But think especially of the last two. To destroy death or really to destroy the one who has the power over death, that's Hebrews 2.14, and then to bring abundant life, John 10.10, 10. to destroy death and to bring abundant life. I mentioned last week that in verse 9, John 10 verse 9, Jesus says of those who enter by the door, he says, I am the door, and he says of those who enter by the door that they will be saved from the wrath of God. From the second death, as Revelation chapter 20 puts it. And so not only are we, as Christians, those in here who are repentant believers in Jesus Christ, not only are we saved from eternal death or eternal damnation, but we're also saved to eternal life. We are saved from death and to eternal abundant life that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting, have eternal life. And so this verse here in John 10.10, when Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, this says the same thing, just kind of in a different setting as John 3.16 says. It's the same thing. So in John chapter 3, just, just remember the settings here. In John chapter 3, Jesus says those words. He, he says John 3.16 to the Pharisee Nicodemus, who, who seems to have come to Jesus. It says that he came to him at night, and he seems to have had genuine questions. We know that you're a teacher sent from God, he says. 
But here in chapters 9 and 10, and the reason I read those last couple verses of chapter 9, is to point out that he's still talking to those Pharisees. Those Pharisees who were mocking him, they did not have genuine questions. They were making fun of him. They were going, to what Jesus was saying. They were in the process of rejecting him. And so as he expands on, when we looked a couple of weeks ago at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 10, uh, John, even in chapter uh, verse 6, calls it a figure of speech. And we're calling it an allegory. As he expands on this, this figure of speech allegory from those first five verses, the object of verse 10 are the sheep. He's talking about the sheep of his sheepfold, the sheep who are saved and and they go in and out and they find pasture. And it's very important to remember those three truths from verse 9 or those those three characteristics, those three benefits as we look at this verse, that that the sheep of his sheepfold are sheep who are saved and go in and out and find pasture. Because if we simply pull verse 10 out of its home here in the midst of Jesus' teaching, we end up with all kinds of wonky theology. And the most insidious, I think, right now at this point in history is this prosperity theology that is just infecting the church. And we're exporting this to other nations. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So I said there that the, the sheep are the object of this verse. So grammatically speaking, the subject is a person or thing doing something in a sentence, and the object is having something done to it. Now I need to mention at this point that I got a low D in high school English, um, so we're just going to keep moving past that. But this first sentence is, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And understood here in the context of all of this is that they are stealing and killing and destroying the sheep. And so we need to talk about the thief. We need to talk about this thief. Often when we hear this passage preached, this verse preached, the thief is automatically assumed to be the devil to be Satan. But that's not right. That's not what this says. Now, the Bible does say this of Satan. Matthew chapter 4 tells us that he is the tempter. He is the one who tempted Christ himself in the wilderness. In John chapter 8, just a couple of chapters earlier, he is called a murderer, a liar, and even the father of lies. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Uh, Peter very famously tells us that he is a a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is a a devourer. And in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, Paul calls him a schemer, a designer of schemes and scams. And Jesus even said, uh, in explaining the, the parable of the sower, that it is Satan, he said, who takes the word away. So let me read just, this is Mark chapter 4, verses fifteen and 14 and 15. This is just Jesus explaining the parable to his disciples. Jesus said, now the, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. 
Do you hear that? He has so blinded the eyes, uh, the, the minds of unbelievers that Jesus said that Satan takes the word of, of God away from people's hearts and minds so that they will not be able to believe. That they will not believe. They will reject Christ. So he is absolutely a thief. The devil is absolutely a thief. He's a thief of the worst kind, and we cannot let him off the hook. But Satan, the devil, is not who Jesus is talking about here. He's still comparing himself to the Pharisees, the false shepherds of the people of Israel. Now, now I want to be clear. He does say up in, in chapter 8, verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So the Pharisees here in chapter 10, he's accusing them of doing satanic work. And Jesus is condemning them for it here. We have to remember this, this passage, this teaching here. It, it comes on the heels of, of Jesus' miraculous healing of the man born blind there in chapter 9. Uh, where we see, and in fact, in that passage, we can see how the false shepherds and how the true shepherd each treated that man. Um, this allegory uh, here at the beginning of the chapter and the explanation, the expansion of the allegory, it needs to be seen as a comparison between shepherds. So, so I want to point out this comparison again. Look up at verse 34 of chapter 9. Verse, verse 34 says this. They answered him, that is this man who was born blind. You were born in utter sin. And you would teach us? And they cast him out. That's what they said. That's what the Pharisees said to this man who had been healed. But compare that to verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. The Pharisees, these false shepherds, these, these wolves in shepherd's clothing, they come only to steal and kill and destroy. And do you know what's interesting? As we look at this, I haven't pointed this out yet, I don't think, in our study of John's gospel. But if you do a study of the type of government that God set up for his people in the Old Testament, you're not going to find Pharisees anywhere. You'll find prophets all over the Old Testament. You'll find priests that God established. After a, after a rocky start, you'll even find some kings. You'll find fathers and mothers leading families. You'll find various administrative positions that seem to have developed over time, like, like elders, which, which had their roots in, in Moses' need for help in governing God's people in the book of Numbers. You'll even find generals, and various uh, mighty men leading armies, but you won't find Pharisees. These religious leaders were usurpers of authority. God did not set them as sheep over his pasture. They climbed in by another way. 
They should, have, they should have stood down when the true shepherd arrived. They should have opened the door, so to speak, and ushered him in. They should have stepped out of the way, but they didn't. In fact, they're trying to block the door. We can see this in how they treated the sheep. Not only did they, did they cast this blind man out, but his parents, when, when we look at, at them in verse 22... Chapter 9, verse 22 indicates that that there was even a widespread fear of the Pharisees. In chapter 10, verse 6, they didn't understand the voice of the true shepherd. Look at the dichotomy there between verses 5 and 6 of of chapter 10. Verse 5 says, A stranger, Jesus says, they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. That's funny. They didn't understand, as Jesus explained, that true sheep understand his voice. His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. There are many uh, false shepherds and false teachings which have infiltrated the church today. And almost every uh, epistle in the New Testament urges us to, let me quote Jude, Jude says, it reminds us to contend, to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that is revealed to us in God's word. And so I am instructed many times as your pastor to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so I want to call out just briefly, um, because I want to get to the second half of this verse. But I want to point out four major heresies that affect the church today. Now, there are others, but these are the four that I think are the biggest. And I want to just mention here that they're not mutually exclusive. They very much overlap. And the first heresy that is infecting the church today is what the Bible calls Judaizers. Uh, This is any kind of works salvation. So in the New Testament, the Judaizers taught that you needed to become Jewish before you could become Christian, that you needed to be circumcised and follow the law before God's grace could be effective. Well, today there are many churches that teach all kinds of different types of works-based salvation. This is anything like from those who would teach, uh, like various denominations do, that water baptism is required for salvation. That's not true, and that is a work. The other end of the spectrum is the Roman Catholic Church, obviously, which teaches that in order to be saved, you must do the, the, the whole list of the works of their seven sacraments. It's a whole list of works that you must do. And that's a false teaching, this kind of works-based salvation. It's a false teaching that infects the church. So let me say this. I don't care how you dress. I don't care what music you listen to. I don't care what movies you watch or, or if you drink alcohol or if you play cards. I don't care about those things as long as you're striving for holiness. Obviously, I do care about those things. But holiness is what we're talking about. If you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation and striving to be like him, striving for sanctification, for holiness out of obedience to and and reverence for Jesus Christ, those other things will take care of themselves. 
The second false teaching that has infiltrated the church and is actively growing, it's becoming more and more popular, although you won't hear it called this usually, it's Gnosticism. Gnosticism. This is the elevation of the spiritual over the physical. Uh, They say our bodies are just shells for our souls. On the one hand, this is incredibly dangerous because they will always end up denying the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. This is every theologically liberal mainline denomination. Every one of them has aspects of this in it. On the other hand, this is also infiltrating the contemporary Christian music world, especially through the enormously influential Jesus culture, the New Apostolic Reformation, Bethel Church, Bethel Music of Redding, California. Instead of being outright theological liberals, what they do, and many others like them, is develop and manufacture a a mystical experience and elevate emotions and, and feelings over biblical truth. This is the same church that pumps glory dust, which is glitter, through the air duct system and and blows, literally, angel feathers into the congregate, not literally, pretend angel feathers into the congregation in order to prove to them that God is present with them. These are bogus, manufactured, mystical experiences. Because evidently Jesus' promises aren't sufficient. Of course, we've already talked, the third one really is a prosperity gospel. I don't want to really give them any more time except to say this. Prosperity, however you would define that, is a blessing from God. It is. And oftentimes we should be more thankful than we are, especially at this point in history, especially in our country. But a lack of prosperity is not necessarily a curse. It's not a punishment for a lack of faith. The idea that God wants you to be fat and happy in this life as a reward for your great faith really boils down to a love of money, which is the root of all sorts of evil. And then the fourth false teaching that has crept in unnoticed is Pelagianism. (laughs) It's actually an ancient heresy named after a man named Pelagius who did not believe that people were born sinners but rather of their own free will, choose to sin and therefore lose their righteous status. Today, what so many people in the church believe, this is rooted in this heresy, is that God is not sovereign over salvation. Instead, the individual must make the initial step of faith before God's saving grace can be given. And so, it's actually what is known as semi-Pelagianism now, It teaches that God imparts the grace of faith in conjunction with the sinner's work in seeking God. In other words, we are dead men who somehow reach up to God, and as a result of our reach, he is then obligated to save us by grace because of our great faith. That's not what the Bible teaches. And those who teach these things have come to steal and kill and destroy and to draw God's sheep away from the sheepfold. And these verbs here in verse 10, steal and kill and destroy, they're stacked like this. They're given three in a row like this for emphasis. uh, To emphasize the devastating effects that these false shepherds, these thieves have on God's people. They steal our hearts and our affections away from Christ and his pastures. Do you know where this often starts? I'm going to be very frank with you. Paul tells us, 
very specifically in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, that they creep into households and capture weak women. And husbands, husbands here, this means unprotected women whose husbands have neglected their spiritual duty of protection and leadership. That's what that means. And in Titus, he says that this ends up upsetting whole families, drawing families away. I'm just going to leave that hanging there for you to wrestle with. They steal and they kill and they destroy spiritually. Matthew Henry defined it like this, just this simple sentence. Deceivers of souls are murderers of souls. Deceivers of souls are murderers of souls. But Jesus. But Jesus. This is where the vision of so many prosperity preachers here is so small. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. He has come that they, that those who enter the sheepfold by the door, by Christ, he has come that they may have life, he says. Now we'll get to the abundantly in a moment, but what does he mean by life? Well, he said to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3 that you must be born again. And he's saying the same thing here. But zoom out for just a moment. Because he says that he has come to give life to his sheep, he's saying. The thief, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you may have life. He has come to give life to his flock. He has come to give life to the church. Jesus Christ must be the central focus of our church or we will be dead. Logansville Church has been on the brink of death more than once. We've been on the brink of death more than once in the history of this church. But Jesus Christ in his mercy has breathed on us the breath of life. And so as the Apostle Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. He said, him we proclaim warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is our job. He has come to give life to his flock. He has come to give life to his church. Previously, the people of God, we were a valley of dry bones. We were not a flock set out to pasture by still waters, but he has come to give us life. And he has promised that the very gates of hell will not prevail. I want you to know that this life um, that Jesus speaks of here, I want you to know what this looks like for the flock of God, for the assembly of the saints. Listen to Ezekiel 34. He prophesies this in verses 11 to 16. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. I myself will be their shepherd. I'll give you a hint in the very next verse. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Christ came to call a people for his own possession. Christ came to fulfill God's promises to his people. These promises. Christ came to purify once and for all his own people, to redress grievances. He came to seek those who were lost. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. He came to give life to his particular sheep. This is to reverse the curse. Let me read you three passages in succession, and I think you will understand. Christ came to to reverse that curse. Three passages. But out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. A little bit later. And to Adam he said... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Ashes to ashes dust to dust. And then the third passage is this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dust to dust, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I'm going to mix the metaphors just a little bit. But then, God said that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He had said that back in Genesis chapter 2. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But now, Jesus said in John 6 verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus gives life to his sheep. We are, we are criminals who are now pardoned. We are sick men who have been cured, uh, blind who now can see. We're dead men who have been raised to walk in newness of life. Jesus gives life to his sheep. Jesus gives li- his life for the sheep. 
Again, Ezekiel 34, verse 16, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. That's what Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30 is talking about. For we know that, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That, that's what life is for his sheep. When Jesus says, I have come that you may have life, he's talking about being foreknown, about being predestined, conformed, called, justified, and glorified, which in Romans 8.30 is in the past tense. It's as good as done, even though you're not in heaven yet. Even though you have not received your glorified, resurrected body, it's done. It's as good as done because God said that it would be. And this is life in abundance. This is abundant life. An abundant life is not a life where you have lots of good credit. An abundant life is not a life filled with lots of stuff. An abundant life is not a life with fancy children or a chiseled spouse. It's not your best life now. That's anti-gospel. If this is our best life now, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Instead, Jesus actually says here that through him we can have life abundantly. It's a comparison. This, these words, abundantly, it's a comparison. We can have life abundantly compared to any life that can be offered by these false teachers. Life in Christ's flock is, is abundant compared to the life lost in sin. Listen to Paul's comparison. He, he does this all the time. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, a life lost in sin compared to an abundant life. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were unclean, but now you're clean. Of course, this is eternal. But it does have implications in this life too. Abundant life does begin the moment that you're justified. It's not just about life after death. It begins the moment that you are saved, the moment that you are washed clean from all of your sin and shame. Abundant life is is not a stage of salvation, not something to be attained later. It's yours in Christ. You don't have to name it and claim it. It's yours in Christ because Christ has called you by name and claimed you as his own. Benjamin Franklin once said that there is nothing certain in this life except death and taxes. Moses said, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. 
they are soon gone and we fly away. But abundant life is eternal life. It is life spent with Christ forever. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, gives us a glimpse of abundant life. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Think of that passage in Ezekiel 34, where God himself promised to be the shepherd of the sheep. Think of here in John 10, 10, where Jesus, or verse 11, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And now think of the truth of Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I don't think we can get more abundant than that. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Pray with me. Well, Father, we we think of these things and we are sobered. It would be really easy for us to follow off some wind or wave of doctrine to get distracted by the life that Christ offers, be overwhelmed with this life, to hear messages that sound good to our ears and to follow them. Father, you have the words of eternal life. So I pray that you would help us not to get distracted. Help us not to be looking around us for ways to have our best life or our abundant life right now aside from Christ. But that we would keep our eyes and our hearts and our minds focused on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. And to cling and hold fast to the truth that one day you will wipe away our tears. That one day death will be destroyed. That one day we will dwell with our God as your people. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.